Hello, and welcome to the Line Edit Podcast, generously supported by the John Templeton Foundation. I'm your host, James Ryerson. On these podcasts, I speak with academics about the craft and the process of writing about their work for popular outlets, be they newspapers, magazines, things like that. Uh, These are typically short pieces for wide audiences about the big questions. Uh, The people I'm talking to are writing about everything from psychology to quantum physics to the nature of reality uh, to the ethics of parenting. So uh, what about me? I've been an editor at the New York Times since 2003, first at the Sunday Magazine and now at the Opinion Pages. Uh, Over the years, I've edited pretty much every kind of piece you can imagine uh, by every kind of writer you can imagine, but I specialize or like to think I specialize in working with scholars and academics. These podcasts are uh, an outgrowth of a series of weekend writing workshops that I've been conducting over the past few years, uh, workshops for academics looking to do precisely this sort of writing. Um, Over the years, many of the attendees have told me that they enjoy hearing not just from me, but from other academics who have already done this kind of writing so that they can get a variety of perspectives on the process, uh, not just my perspective as an editor. Uh, And hence, uh, these podcasts, which I hope will help convey to you what the editorial conversation and the editorial process are like. For this episode, I'm pleased to have with me Matthew Liao, a professor of philosophy and director of the Center for Bioethics at New York University. In November of 2018, I believe, uh, Matthew published a terrific piece with me in the Sunday Review section of the New York Times. The piece was called, Do You Have a Moral Duty to Leave Facebook? One of the really interesting things about this piece is that I commissioned it on very short notice, meaning that Matthew got an email in his inbox uh, on a Monday with a request to write a piece that would be available online and in newsstands that very weekend. In this episode, we talk through the life cycle of this sort of commissioned piece from the frantic early email notification that I sent him to the ultimate glorious publication. And we hear from Matthew his advice for scholars that might be called up, uh, whether it's by a print outlet or even television outlets, um, to give their informed sort of point of view on whatever topic of the day um, on very short notice. Uh, Matthew and I had a really rich discussion, and we got into a lot of uh, interesting points uh, about writing, uh, especially his thoughts on um, public philosophy, and even more specifically, uh, public philosophy done in the tradition of analytical philosophy. In many uh, previous interviews I've done on this podcast, I've spoken with academics that I've, I've worked with many times and, and in many cases have gotten to know personally. Um, Matthew is an academic that I've worked with only once um, and by email and phone. and I've never met him before, so uh, it's a great thrill to get to meet him in person and to uh, get to know him a little better. We are uh, talking today in his um, extremely elevated office at NYU. I believe it's on the 12th floor of... Uh, some building with some sort of name on Broadway and um, in Manhattan. And he has a wonderful view of uh, Manhattan Bridge. Manhattan Bridge? Okay, it's Manhattan Bridge. Uh, and we're going to talk today about a piece he wrote in uh, November, uh, November 24th, 2018, in the Sunday Review section of the New York Times, uh, with the title, Do You Have a Moral uh, Duty to Leave Facebook? Um, uh, and we will talk about that piece a little bit more in a few minutes. Um, 
But first, um, uh, welcome, Matthew. Uh, hi, Th- thanks for having me, Jamie. <laughs> it's, our, it's our pleasure. Um, so, so, who, so who are you? You seem to have a lot of affiliations uh, and responsibilities here at uh, New York University. Uh, so, as you said, I'm a philosopher by training. I chair and direct the Center for Bioethics here at NYU. Uh, I've been working on sort of uh, my main area of research is emerging uh, technologies, the ethics of emerging technologies. Uh, I've written about uh, things like erasing memories, whether that's a good idea, whether designer babies are a good idea. Uh, And I've written a bit about climate change, children's rights, human rights, and uh, right now, I'm working on a popular book called "The Future Brain." Right, and uh, that—that's the, the future brain. The future brain. The future brain. Uh-huh. Uh, and so, you know, when you're when you're a professor of bioethics, uh, I assume that means you're you're teaching courses and so forth in the manner of a traditional academic. But when you're the director of a center for bioethics, are you doing a lot of uh, public events, public outreach? What, what kind of uh, activities are involved in the center? That's right. So there's a lot of sort of public outreach in terms of trying to. Get get people uh, to know more about our center activities. So we put on workshops and conferences. Uh, So each year, for example, we put on a major conference. Uh, We put on conferences such as the Ethics of Artificial Intelligence. That's something I did with uh, uh, my colleague in philosophy, David Chalmers. Um, We also did something on animal consciousness. uh, And uh, this year, we're going to do something on algorithmic bias. Fascinating. Um, Yeah. Fascinating. uh, many of the academics I, I speak with, um, you know, work in areas where there's some sort of open question about whether and how much popular audiences need to engage with that work. So if someone's a, you know, metaphysics, uh, you know, professor of you know, philosophy who specializes in metaphysics and they're interested in, you know, myriology and the study of parts and wholes, you know, there's a there's a case to be made that maybe that's best left for people who are really interested in it. And understandably, that may be a small audience and maybe not one that reads you know, newspapers as their way to engage with things intellectually or something like that. But you're uh, an ethicist, um, mm-hmm. and uh, it seems like there's almost a built-in uh, sense that if you're doing, you know, applied moral philosophy or whatever you might call ethics, that there's a, uh, an, a built-in uh, obligation or certainly built-in interest in connecting with you know, sort of regular people outside the mm-hmm. academy. Is that right? Uh, that's, that's absolutely right. I found that the public is very interested in the ethical dimensions of uh, these issues, these emerging issues. And so I've uh, done a lot of public talks. I've done two TED Talks. Uh, I've spoken at the Sydney Opera House and many other places. And um, they've been all, they've been very receptive to the idea and they it seems like they want more especially sort of in this day and age people are thinking more and more about sort of ethical issues and how they should uh, uh, act and um, you know uh, behave so and and so you're talking about people who are coming to these conferences who are uh, or these public appearances who are not just academics but um, I mean what do you get people who work in those areas you know technologists and people in in, in, the, in those industries or do you primarily get lawmakers and policymakers who are interested in how to draft legislation that might uh, all of the above or what what, what sort of people do you find yourself engaging with yeah so all of the above so uh, last month I was uh, 
at uh, the World Science Forum in Budapest. Mm. And there, there were many sort of uh, policymakers and uh, who are interested in sort of just emerging technologies. I talked about the ethics of AI uh, there. And um, I think the president of Poland was there. Um, uh, the president of Hungary was there. Mm. And, um, and, and, you know, numerous other people from the UN. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, so that, that was sort of one type of, uh, one type of uh, events that I've been to. I've also uh, sort of sat on NIH sort of workshops where they want to know, for example, how machine learning is going to, uh, whether they should be funding a machine learning. So it's more mm, practical mm. sort of gui guidance, policy guidance. They want to formulate policies around some of these technologies. Uh, I've also done things that are much broader. So I just came back from the Renaissance weekend. Mm -hmm. That's something that the Clintons used to go uh -huh. to. Uh, and there uh, you have people like, so like Al Franken was there, Dr. Uh -huh. Ruth was there. Uh -huh. And so you get a much broader audience. There are people who uh, work in maybe in science, but they're also politicians, astronauts, and so on and so forth. So, so, so a lot of your, you know, outreach to a, to a, to a kind of popular audience or a wider audience is one, it's, it's often not in the form of necessarily in the form of writing, although presumably you're giving talks and things like that that mm -hmm. are written. Is that right? Uh, so do you, do you feel like you have already a kind of, uh, a kind of a writing mode that you use for those kinds of settings that's different than your academic writing mode or or how do you how do you see those sort of two voices yeah that's a great question uh, absolutely i think that when you speak to the public uh it's a very different mode than when you uh you know write to my peers uh in the uh, in, in the academia so for the public uh you know, uh, like these these people are, uh, you know, very smart. They might not know the subject area. So it's very important that I uh, try to just, you know, like not, not use too many jargons, mm -hmm. right? And just sort of explain different things. They'll know, I mean, they, you know, they'll be able to handle complex ideas, but you need to explain them in a way that you can, you know, that they can understand. So put, a, put them in terms that they can understand. And that usually goes down really well. The other thing, Thing, uh, is you sh like I try not to make too many moves as philosophers would mm -hmm. say you know sort of try to stick to one big idea and one big point that I want to try to uh, get across uh, or maybe just a few but you know and and then I try to not go down to the rabbit hole too much so right, right. sort of this is how somebody would reply and this is some uh, so, you know, like somebody else can reply to this. That's probably not necessary in a broader general audience. They're just trying to get the feel for what's the big issue here. What's the you, you know, right, and, right. and what are some, like what are like what's one thing that they should be thinking about, yeah. right? That's something that totally struck me when. Uh, not to jump too far ahead, but yeah. the, when when you filed the piece for me, um, I hadn't really known you as someone who had done a lot of uh, popular writing. I didn't recognize your byline from. The Times or the New Yorker or the Wall Street Journal or the LA Times or the Atlantic or I didn't think of you as a as a as a prolific byline. When you filed the piece, I thought this guy already knows how to do this. And then it occurred to me, oh, he's doing this in in other contexts that aren't necessarily published pieces, uh, but they are, you know, times when he's 
sat down and figured out how to communicate an idea to a different audience. So I realized you were already fairly practiced in it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and then the decision to, you said your, your, um, your, your new book, uh, the, the future brain, uh-huh. you, am I right? You're doing that with a trade press rather than a university press. That's right. That's why. Uh, yeah. I don't have a uh, publisher at the moment, mm. but I've been sort of speaking to some agents and sort of, uh, presses, but the idea is going to be to write this book in a way that's accessible to a general public. Right, so, right. yeah. I mean, it's interesting because you often find that, you know, certain high-end university presses like, say, Princeton will publish a book that's not totally, if you just read it, not totally different than a really smart book from, say, basic books or Mm -hmm. something like that. Um, But in my experience talking to academics, just the process of working with trade press editors, working with an agent, um, can kind of force you to start to conceive of the material in a slightly different way um, in terms of the way you approach it. Um, it was What was your decision in, in terms of doing it as a trade press book rather than as a, uh, a, a university press book? Is it primarily to reach a wider audience or to write in a different mode? Yeah, so pr- I think it's primarily to reach a wider audience. I feel like, uh, so this is uh, the future brains about, so I've been teaching this course on neural ethics mm-hmm. uh, for quite a while. And uh, I've been, I've written many papers on things like erasing memories, addiction, cognitive enhancement, also things like uploading our mental states and right, things right. like that. And all these topics Topics are very amenable to, uh, like the public is really interested in these topics. Uh, you see them in sort of uh, popular media. And science fiction yeah, representations science fiction. too, popular sort of dystopian that's science what, that's fiction. Right. Yeah. That's right. And so I thought it'd be helpful for someone who has worked on these, uh, the, uh, work in these areas, have written about these topics to really write something in a way that's accessible and then also to communicate. And so I'm an ethicist, so also to bring in the ethical dimensions. So some of the the other writings tend to be more just about the science uh, and so I want to bring in the science but as well as bringing some of the ethical ideas like how to think about these technologies should we be adopting them you know maybe we should avoid some of them and and things like that and so yeah I'm curious when you first started as an academic uh, maybe let's just say in grad school or as an undergraduate developing interests uh, you were working in in philosophy correct Mm -hmm. Um, I know you did a book called the right to be loved which, um, which I, I regret to say I haven't yet read, but uh, which sounds like it's a moral philosophy book, mm-hmm. not necessarily ethics. Is that right? That's right. Um, were you always interested in ethics or did that develop, develop a little bit later? And I guess my question is, when was your interest in ethics um, always driven by a kind of sense of applicability uh, mm-hmm. to, you know, to, mm-hmm. a, to a kind of a larger audience outside the academy? Uh, yes. So actually, I started out uh, being quite interested in political philosophy. Mm. And so there's uh, sort of the a- applicability. I was coming from the applied side, and I was quite interested in uh, issues relating to different theories of justice. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, John Rawls wrote this book on a theory of justice, but then Susan Moeller Oaken had this critique of John Rawls mm-hmm. saying that justice should apply to the family mm-hmm. and, you know, not just not uh, like it, it, it should apply. So to the relationships in the family, mm-hmm. especially between men and women. And I was quite interested in sort of the also the relationship between parents and children. Uh-huh. So as a result, I wrote this book on the right to be loved, which is about children's right to be loved. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so but and then from that book, uh, 
I got really interested in a bunch of emerging technologies relating to children, sort uh-huh. of things like designer babies uh, and, and things like that. And so that sort of that was my segue into this whole world of bioethics. Because it yeah. seems like a yeah. So for 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 listeners who don't understand the difference between moral philosophy and say uh, ethics, uh, moral philosophy it sounds like from what you're saying is more general issues about you know what our rights are and you know uh themes about justice or um uh the nature of right and wrong that sort of thing whereas when you're when you're dealing in ethics it's it's just much more applied much more specific context is that right or or would you draw the distinction differently yeah i think that's one way to that, that that's one way to draw the distinction so so as a as an ethicist who's interested in reaching out to the public in various ways whether it's uh conferences or public talks or trade press books. Uh, have you become more mindful of others that you see as very good at this kind of uh, you know, public outreach writing and philosophy? Are there books that you always admired that do this well? Are there people who are uh, doing it well now that you use as a model or that you hold up as a kind of standard mm-hmm. uh, for this kind of uh, public philosophy? Um uh, that's a great question. So there are uh, a bunch of philosophers who are starting to, or who have written in styles that are very accessible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Jason Stanley, for example, mm-hmm. is like someone who writes really well. Kate Maine, I really like her work. She did the uh, mis- the, misogyny book. The, is that the right? yeah, Down Girl, Down Girl, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, which was fantastic. Although she didn't try to, I don't know if she was writing for the popular audience it was quite philosophical but nevertheless it was uh, sort of uh, an excellent book and just sort of uh, sort of exercising rigor but also accessibility I think she, she's a really good writer I believe her uh, next book is yeah. a trade press book. Uh, that's that right, right? Yeah. that's right that's right and um, so there there are more and more philosophers who are doing this my colleague uh, Dave Chalmers is also writing a, a, a trade book at the moment um, and so and more and you know the New York Times has the stone mm-hmm. uh, section so it's uh, uh, more and more uh, the the disciplines encouraging us to p- uh, put out these pieces, and I think that's been a good development uh, for us. So, and when you were when you were first getting interested in philosophy, were you exclusively drawn in by? works of academic philosophy or were there you know maybe even when you were much much younger before you even knew you were aware and uh, interested in philosophy were there there books of kind of popular uh philosophical writing or popular kind of works of abstract thinking that um that you remember engaging with you know at any at any age really mm-hmm. Uh, so I remember sort of in ele- like 11th grade, mm-hmm. so that's quite a while ago, uh, I did this international baccalaureate program mm-hmm. and they had a, um, a course called the theory of knowledge. Mm. And that was when uh, I was first exposed uh, extensively to um, philosophy. Uh, we were reading Aristotle, huh. uh, like some, I don't even remember exactly which section, you know, like what, what we were reading. But I, it just, uh, it was, I just, uh, thought it was fascinating um, just the way uh, the arguments were constructed it was very different uh, type of reading than uh, the literary things that we were reading in I English see. and um, so that that made a huge impact on me uh, and then in college I was reading pretty widely you know I was uh, quite interested in Nietzsche mm-hmm. uh, sort of Wittgenstein um, sort of um, 
uh, Kierkegaard. Uh, so a very broad range of um, different authors and sort of writers from different disciplines, you know, sort of different styles, you know, with different styles. Right. But it sounds so, like you went yeah. right into the kind of red hot center of real philosophy. Right. Whereas like for me, for instance, and maybe there are examples like this for you, um, you know, when I was in high school, the, the books that that really got me interested in the kind of things I am interested in today were books like Stephen Jay Gould's books um, yeah. on, you know, evolutionary thinking yeah. or even, um, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the, my interest in philosophy grew out of reading Borges stories, Ooh. you know, some mm. of the more, yeah. you know, conceptual stories mm-hmm. uh, about, you know, the Talan Akbar story about mm-hmm. languages and, you know, uh, and how, you know, languages, you know, imply an ontology thing. I couldn't have put it in those terms at that time, <laughs> but those sorts of ideas were really interesting to me. Yeah. So I didn't get interested in, you know, until much later did I realize that there were systematic ways to study some of this stuff. But yeah. uh, I feel like those were my first kind of glimpses. Were you really primarily engaged? It sounds like you really went to the to the real philosophy yeah. um yeah. or were there kind of other kind of books that you remember engage you know engaging you as a kind of yeah as a thinker i i think like well like brave new world uh-huh. was uh one uh that was uh really interesting i mean makes ni- a lot of sense yeah. given what you do yeah. now <laughs> in 1984 of uh-huh. course uh was uh sort of uh i i just remembered those having you know just thinking about uh totalitarianism and you know sort of some of the ideas i didn't know it at the time but right. you know there were some sort of political philosophy concepts right that right that were embedded in these uh, stories. Uh, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. Uh, That's super, super interesting. Um, so let's let's turn to the, the piece that you wrote for me. Uh, again, it's this fantastic piece called Do You Have a Moral Duty to Leave Facebook? Uh, it's a wonderful, uh, very crisp example of... Um, uh, you know, kind of public philosophy in a very short space, you go through, you know, the distinction between duty to yourself versus duty to others, um, various different ways of conceptualizing harm uh, and, uh, and and the relationship of, uh, of a small individual participating in a large entity and how much that small individual is implicated in things that that large entity does or allows to be done. There's a lot of distinctions you were able to kind of work through in a very short space without it feeling like a academic work. So uh, it's one reason I wanted to talk to you about it. I thought it was a, a terrific piece. Um, uh, and um, and uh, so I was trying to remember how it came about. Um, I, I reached out to you. Is that correct? That's correct. <laughs> uh, uh, and I, that, that's, that was my recollection. I, I looked um, at my emails and I realized that my um, my colleague, Rachel Dry, who uh, was at the time the editor of the Sunday Review section, um, uh, had asked me to find someone, uh, she said, a, ph- a philosopher who could address the question of, you know, when or whether a Facebook user has a moral obligation to leave the platform. And this was this was in November of 2018. There had been sort of a steady drumbeat for some period of time about a lot of concerns with Facebook. I think that week it was really, if I could be wrong about this, I think that week it was just the Times had maybe reported that Facebook had... Um, uh, hired uh, like a PR agency to to try to discredit some protesters by uh, affiliating them with, uh, with with Soros, George Soros, or something like that. Something sort of scurrilous and underhanded, and uh, and it just felt like we probably could have assigned this piece at any time over the previous year and a half. But it, for that particular week, my I think my boss just said, "Boy, do we do we do we have an obligation to leave it? You know, at some point, and if so, when?" and um, so she asked me to um, 
to reach out to somebody. Um, and just so our listeners know, uh, this is how sort of an editor works. I, I kind of drew a little bit of a blank, which is often a sign that you do know the answer, but that you kind of can't figure out how to summon it. Uh, my recollection is that... Um, that I um, I had been recently emailing with uh, Samuel Scheffler, who's a philosopher at NYU, um, whom I've published in the Times on one occasion and whom I've been in contact with over the years, just on a few occasions for various uh, projects I've been interested in. And so since I had been in touch with him, I just dropped him another note and I said, this doesn't really seem like your kind of thing, but we're looking for someone you know, who can, who can write about this topic, who, who can do it in a way that's philosophical and abstract, but that's ideally also really grounded in the specific controversies surrounding Facebook and grounded in a familiarity with what it is like to use Facebook. And uh, Sam is not on Facebook, uh, so he, I expected he wouldn't be a natural person, and he said, oh, no, I, I myself am not. But he rattled off a few names, and as soon as I saw your name, I, I thought, oh, I recognize that name from somewhere. Uh, and so I Googled you and looked you up and I said, oh, this is the perfect guy to reach out to. So I reach out to you and, um, and, uh, and you were interested, were you not? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, I have been thinking about the same thing uh-huh. as well, just uh, with all the things that were happening with Facebook. Uh, and I'm a prolific uh, sort of uh, Facebook user. Uh-huh. And so I, I feel, but I feel the sense of just sort of, uh, should I be on this platform? Should I be encouraging this platform? So I've been thinking about some of these issues. And one thing I really liked was that the question you had posed was so specific. Uh, you know, do you like, can you think about whether you have an obligation to leave it? And that was really great because, you know, it's, uh, the question resonated with me and it was a very, it it wasn't, uh, it it was very helpful to just sort of narrow, you know, if you, if someone were to say, Hey, can you just write something about Facebook? Uh, that might've been harder, but this was, uh, you, you had something in mind and it, it also at, you know, just, uh, happened to resonate with me. And so I, and I had some thoughts about it. So I, you know, readily agreed. Yeah, you know. So yeah, I, yeah. That, that's that's great to hear. <laughs> yeah. I, I pulled up the email here. I, uh, the the specific question was: At what point does one become implicated in the moral lapses of an enormous entity to which one contributes only minimally? Yeah. Which was a very academic way of phrasing the question, but. In the end, though I don't think many of our readers would have phrased their anxiety in quite those terms, my intuition was that a lot of our readers had that anxiety without necessarily phrasing it that way. Um, and that having an academic, um, you know, uh, address the question of not, are you mad at Facebook? Is Facebook irritating you? Is Facebook evil? Uh, but a relatively kind of academic sounding question, do you have a moral duty to leave Facebook. Uh, the other thing, uh, uh, so I remember being excited that you re- replied quickly and that you said you had been thinking about this. Um, do you remember having, I remember asking you if you could do it in about 48 hours. Uh, <laughs> uh, with a lot of academics, when I approach them about writing pieces for me, mm. it's because I've become aware of their work or they've reached out to me and introduced me to their work. And it's something that is just kind of interesting in general. So I say to them, oh yeah, take a week or two, write mm-hmm. something. And but you know, we can bounce it back and forth over a couple of weeks. And when the time comes, we'll just look for an opportunity to, mm-hmm. you know, find a publishing slot and drop it in. This was something where my boss had specifically said to me, it's Monday or it's Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And I want this in Sunday, which means, you know, if, we've, if we don't know who this writer is, we want to try to see some copy by mm-hmm. Wednesday or Thursday because we're going to ship it by Friday. Mm-hmm. Sorry if this is too much detail, but basically <laughs> the general gist is, you know, uh, w- 
you know, if, if I were reaching out to someone who wrote for us all the time, mm-hmm. I might have said, yeah, just get it to us by Friday morning and mm-hmm. we'll, you know, do a quick back and forth. And But, yeah. you know, when you don't know somebody, you kind of want to have a little bit more time. So so I think I gave you 48 hours, mm-hmm. which I assume is not the kind of deadline you're used to working with. No, that's right. That's right. Uh, but I've, I've done some public writing and sort of I've done updates in other context where they wanted it was like a short turnaround and also the media i know that you know i've done some like television sort of where uh they usually they call you and they say can you come this afternoon or can you come Uh tomorrow morning and so you kind of have to be ready if you want to do it you kind of have to be ready and ready to uh, go with like the specific ideas that you have and so in this case i just thought you know this is such a great opportunity i've been thinking about uh, these ideas it would give me the uh opportunity to uh put down the, uh, the thoughts that i've been having uh and um i th- i thought that uh i mean it was a very short turnaround but i thought i could do it um and so i just sort of like basically clear clear the deck and just sat down and just worked on that uh, <laughs> i think i i worked till uh, I did the first draft till like way into the early hours in the morning, the, you know, the first night and then, you know, trying to get something. I wanted to, I, I always find it helpful to show it to a couple of close friends, uh-huh, you know, sure. so I wanted to get it done so that I can show it to them the next day, you know, um, yeah, I think you want it even shorter. I think you want it within 24 hours. Okay. <laughs> and I sort of said, uh, oh, but you, you gave me the option, like, like, can you get it tomorrow or the day after? And I sort of said, can, can I have it the day after? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting you say that about, especially, you know, you also mentioned being on television. A lot yeah. of academics are, and I, this is something I admire about academics, they're often reluctant to chime in very quickly about something. Um, they like to take their time and turn it over and look at it from all angles and see every facet in the light and and so on and so forth. That's one thing we like about academics. Um, have you found that when you do, whether it's pieces like this or quick TV appearances, that, um, that it comes to you naturally? Or have you kind of had to force yourself to be kind of game for yeah. that kind of thing? I think it's a certain thing, like, I think uh, you have to get yourself ready for it. And you have to be, you have to kind of know what you want to say, like maybe pick like, uh, you know, it's kind of, it's public speaking, public writing. So there, you can't cover everything and you can't go into all the details. So you just have to, uh, you know, pick one or two points and sort of be ready to say those things when you're uh, uh, on television and also be ready to be cut off, you know. Uh, but I find it worthwhile, and this is why this is you know I would encourage uh, sort of fellow academics to really think about uh, this and do this. The, uh, what really persuaded me was that um, there are a lot of people who do the uh, you know sort of uh, there are a lot of talking heads so to speak. Uh-huh. Uh, but I think philosophers have something to contribute, and I just uh, feel that you know we also have an obligation to be out there to put out some of the ideas to enrich the conversation. Because if we don't do if we don't put out that distinction on that idea, then it might not get put out there. I mean, it might still make it there, but I just think that you know we could do you know we we can do it, and it would be helpful for the public discourse if that you know if certain distinctions were made, um, and and so uh, and. That's why I do it, and that's why I do it even under this type of constraint. Because um, I think sometimes the constraint also helps uh, yeah, because yeah, it just really so. forces you to be very succinct uh-huh. to just you know say what you think and that's it. You know, and, so oh that's because yeah. inter- I was about to say so. It sounds like you you know are just encouraging people to have two modes. One yeah. is your kind of philosopher mode 
in the academic context where yeah. you take your time and you lay everything out very slowly and you have every single caveat and uh, you address every single related piece of literature that has to be addressed. And then you have this kind of other mode where you just realize that a philosopher speaking very quickly on television may not be doing very good philosophy, but he may yeah. be doing a better job of speaking quickly on television than yeah. pretty much anybody else. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> uh, but it sounds like you're actually saying that you're able to draw back lessons from it, uh, that the succinctness, for instance, is something that you can then in academic context, it's a skill you can rely on. Yeah. So I think in the course of doing more public writing and public speaking, it's really helped me with my academic writing as well. So I've, I've learned to frame my work uh, differently now, sort of in a way that's more accessible. And there might be people who, uh, so there are a couple, your peers will know exactly what you're talking about, but there might be people who are smart in academia who might not work in your area. And so you kind of also want to encourage them to read your piece if possible as well. And so just being able to frame things uh, uh, I think that's that's a very helpful skill to have, even for academics. Um, and so I, I, be, I, I feel like I've been able to do a bit of that as well. So I definitely have, it's, it, it's gone both ways. It's bi-directional. So, yeah, that's yeah. actually because I often yeah. phrase things a little in a little bit of a Manichaean way. It's either you're writing for academics or you're writing for the you know broader public. But in fact, obviously, if you're writing for philosophers in a certain way, you may not actually... Uh, find yourself engaging the, you know, biochemist who would actually be interested in your work on, you know, whatever bioethical issue is arising in the context of, you know, molecular manipulation or something like that. Yeah, that's that's really interesting way to think about it. And, and another another question that 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 occurs to me um, about being on television as an academic. Uh, in addition to having to be, say, just succinct, we all know just from watching that you have to be succinct. Uh, are there other just practical kind of tricks of the trade that you've developed to uh, to perform better on television, whether that's how you prepare or whether that's what, what you bring to the segment or whether it's something you ask the producer ahead of time or, mm -hmm. or, or anything like that? Yeah, so usually they when they approach you, they have something in mind. It, you know, you, they're approaching you as an area expert. And so... Uh, they feel that you can contribute something. So you have to think about what that thing is. <laughs> and then uh, what I try to do is I try to front load it. Um, so I basically try to say it, you know, as quickly as I can, because they might not get back to you again, mm -hmm. or, you know, like the conversation could go different ways. So if you want to sort of have no regrets, sort of the, I call it the regret test, you know, <laughs> like no regrets, you know, you've got, you, we went there and you did your part, you say what you want to say, then you kind of want to say it, uh, you want to front load it, you know. Uh, Does that mean uh, just in practice, yeah. you know, starting with your conclusions and then that's leaving right. the arguments for later, which that's is not right. something philosophers are used to doing, that, something like that? That's, that's exactly it. So you want to, uh, you want to say it right away and then uh, say, say your conclusion uh, maybe hint at the argument uh, but you know very quickly and then if they if uh, sometimes the uh, you know you'll be invited to elaborate and then you can then you have to be ready to elaborate and sort of give the you know give your arguments etc etc but sometimes you won't be you know <laughs> and so you have to be ready for that as well and so just be happy that you put out the point that you want to uh, to to make and I find that to be very helpful because uh, you know just with uh, the media well especially on television uh, where you know the the, the time is uh, sort of shorter yeah, and if it's live then you know you just have no idea where the conversation is going to go and so you just uh, it's it's much better to just get your point across right away um, yeah 
that that's really interesting yeah. um uh, circling back to the uh to the piece you did for the times um i'm you may not actually have any recollection of this either, but I do remember calling you. Mm, yes. I mean, we emailed, you yeah. agreed to do it. And yeah. then I was on, on my way in there this morning. I, I was like, you know, I remember having a really nice phone conversation with Matthew. Um, and I don't remember exactly when it occurred and what we talked about. Do you have any recollection? I remember that we spoke. I'm trying to remember when, <laughs> like sort of whether, I think it was... Uh, I think you maybe had filed the draft. And yeah, I, after after the draft and then we spoke uh, on the phone. We kind of talked through some of the... Uh, some of maybe what I was going to do. That's right. Edits? No, okay. that's right. That's right. And then, then you sent me the edits. Uh, and um, I think in the course of talking through it maybe i made a few more edits in light of what you said uh, yeah, yeah that's possible i uh, often find uh, that if i haven't worked with a writer before yeah and if they file a very clean copy mm -hmm. i immediately form an impression of the writer in my mind as someone who takes pride in mm -hmm. his or her writing mm -hmm. uh who is clearly focused on craft who's made a lot of deliberate decisions, which is not always the case <laughs> with pieces that one receives right, as an right. editor. Sometimes they're dashed off right. and they really, uh, a, a, and they don't seem to reflect a lot of effort to try to imagine how this is going to read to a regular reader. Mm -hmm. uh, but, and so in those cases, when I get a draft that's sort of messy and suggests this person has, you know, really interesting ideas, but hasn't put a lot of thought into how they're being expressed, I will often just very aggressively begin to edit and then I will send it to the person and say how about something like this and I don't really expect them to push back much at that point because they've indicated to me implicitly through their draft that they're kind of expecting me to make it look like a times op-ed or that they didn't even realize that it didn't look like a times op-ed and when they see it in that form with some edits they're usually quite excited and they say oh wow this this looks like when I when I get a writer who's clearly already thinking like that and putting in care Obviously, there's almost in every case, even even things I write, I get edited. You know, nobody writes perfect pieces. Everyone needs some feedback and some perspective, no matter how experienced you are in a particular form of writing. Uh, I find that um, that that when I'm dealing with that kind of writer, I'm often wary of. I'm going to have to dive in and make some changes and propose some things, but I'm often more wary when the draft is good of alienating a writer or having the writer not realize that you know I appreciate that what they've done but that so I often in a writer like that I often want to call them and say this is great um and just give them a heads up about what I'm going to do so that when I finally deliver it it's um it's not a sort of surprise or anything like that um um but I guess we must have also talked through some of some of the points um uh some of the substance of some of the points no I think we did and I you were super helpful I just remember uh both in the conversation and in your edits uh so I don't get very attached to my writing uh -huh. so, uh, you know some people might um but I just feel like um part of my job is just to try to communicate certain ideas that I think are important and so um and I thought that your edits were super helpful in making that even clearer, like bringing some of the ideas out, um, like in, you know, sort of in an even better way. And so I, I, w I welcome that. So I, I was, uh, I was very happy with the edits. Uh, I thought, wow, this is, this is really great. You know, I, I should get this all the time, <laughs> you know, like would st uh, totally improve the communication, you know, sort of the, the pieces, uh, meant to communicate certain ideas. And that's sort of the, the important thing, uh, for me, 
Um, and so, and I thought that you really facilitated uh, that process. So, oh well, yeah. I'm glad. I I was kind of I I went back into the file and I was kind of looking at at the the tracked changes version of what I sent you. And there's, there's a you know a, a lot of sort of uh, not that interesting to talk about stuff like uh, you know I, I sped up the inter- the beginning a That's little right. bit like that things like that just yeah. standard uh, yeah. you know I think the piece begins by you saying that you joined Facebook and for the most part you've benefited from being on it yeah. and then I think there was probably a paragraph of examples of how you use it and then yeah. you said something like lately I've started to wonder yeah. whether it's such a good thing I, I think it's we, we cut out, I cut out all yeah. the stuff where you explain how you used it yeah. just on the basic journalistic thinking. I was like, oh, everybody kind of knows what he's right. alluding to there. That yeah. sort of thing. Not that interesting as an edit. Yeah. The only interesting edit I found in terms of just what might be instructive for, um, for, for, for listeners was that, um, uh, you know, you had this, you, I believe you have a sentence here that says, I've wondered whether I should delete my Facebook account. Right. Um, and I think I inserted, um, uh, the sentence, as a philosopher with a special interest in ethics, I am using should in the moral sense. Mm-hmm. That is, in light of recent events, is there a duty to leave it? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was one of those things where I felt like you had written that piece um, you know, as a philosopher, and it's just so obvious to you mm-hmm. that what you mean by should and here is is not should you because it's convenient or should you because you're already committed to certain things, uh, but a kind of deeper Mm -hmm. should. And the whole reason we were going to you was to get not just another critique of Facebook, but to get something that felt a little more Mm -hmm. fundamental. Mm -hmm. Um, And I realized that for, you know, even though it says, you know, that in your byline that you're a philosopher and in your author ID that you're a bioethicist, I really wanted it right there in the piece. This is a piece about whether you should leave and we're using should in the kind of most, yeah. you know, most kind of rarefied mm-hmm. philosophical, powerful sense. Like, do you have a duty, yeah. um, a moral duty, not a duty to your friends or your social set yeah. or something like that. So I, that was interesting to me because that's, that's not a sentence that that's a sentence that I wouldn't have expected you to put in. Uh-huh. Um, it's a sentence that I feel like, um, that I, it was just a way of just that's the sentence where I realized that's what I was trying to I wanted the reader to understand exactly yeah. where we were coming from um, I, I thought that was super helpful because as you said I just implicitly assumed that uh, when I used the word should I mean the moral you know it's like a moral duty um, but that wasn't clear. Like you're absolutely right. You know, it's kind of ambiguous. It could it could mean just should I? It's, it could be prudential. Should I for myself? You know, just get rid of it because it's kind of making my life miserable. Right. That type of should. That could be a should as well, right? Uh, should I do it? You know, uh, for my you know because my you know like I'm spending too much time and my spouse thinks I should get off the Facebook. You know, that's a should too. And so this moral should. I, I thought the emphasis was perfect. And that uh, when I saw that. Uh, that correction or that edit, that suggestion, I was thinking, wow, this sounds like a, this is like what a philosopher <laughs> would, uh, you know, like sort of, you know, make clear because there was ambiguity here and you were making it, uh, you were almost playing the role of a philosopher and sort of making it clear, you know, like for the audience that, hey, this is the moral shit that we're talking about here. So as a philosopher, I loved it. <laughs> so. uh, the, the other edit I noticed, which is sort of towards the end, um, which again, to me, felt like one of these moments where, so my favorite pieces are pieces where, um, you know, and this is true of pretty much every piece, I couldn't have written it myself, but I feel like uh, 
you know, I'm able to bring something as a journalist perspectively to the piece that um, that maybe the academic wouldn't have thought to do in terms of framing. Uh, there's one line towards the end of the piece um, that, uh, uh, let's see if I can um, find it here. Um, in, in the course of the piece, you one of the challenges of the piece, let me put it this way, was that um, when you ask someone to write a piece for a, a, you know the New York Times about whether there's a moral duty to leave Facebook, um, and their answer is, I, I don't know. There might be. It's too soon to tell. Now, that was basically your argument. Your argument was there are a lot of... Here's, here's a lot of ways you could have a moral duty. And has Facebook gotten us to that point yet? Doesn't quite look like we're there yet, but it's definitely not trending in the right direction. Now, I thought that was probably the, the right answer, but it wasn't... I think I, I'm putting words in her mouth, but I bet my boss was hoping that we would have a piece that said you have a moral duty to leave. Um, or, you know to exonerate Facebook and say, don't blame Facebook for things that its users are doing or something like that. Clear, like you, you don't have a moral, and you gave a kind of, this is, you know, it's, it's an excellent, extremely carefully uh, wrought argument, but it's the kind of thing that people worry that academics will tell them, which is like, well, it's very complicated. <laughs> uh, uh, and here's the shape and structure of the complication, but I'm still not going to tell you whether to do it or not. Yeah. And, in, in a way, the, the piece was doing just that. It was showing the precise shape and structure of the complication, uh, you know, uh, and and pointing out evidence and these, these are things. But ultimately, you said, like, it's, I'm a, you know, it doesn't look like Facebook yet that we have total evidence that they are really 100% behind some of these things. If, if we ever saw that they did, that would be one thing. But it's... Um, and I was trying to figure out a way to just create some drama around this idea that, well, we've seen... Because one way to put it is, well, we've seen a lot of stuff uh, that doesn't look so good, but we really can't pin it on them. I was trying to figure out a little bit of drama. So I was looking at what you had read, and I just inserted the sentence, while there still appears to be uh, some daylight between Facebook itself and what is being done on its platform, darkness is crowding in. And again, as a journalist, that was just my attempt to take what you had said and repeat it in the most dramatic way I could think of so that for the reader there wasn't a sense of like well I'm not really being told what to do but there is a sense of oh I see where he's going with this there is a real kind of haunting nature to the analysis because the analysis is so clear and the reason we went to you is it's so clear so rationally laid out so thoughtful step by step um it's not the voice of a Jeremiah or a polemicist or someone who's, you know, freaking out. I mean, it's incredibly careful. And again, that's why we wanted you to do it. But I did feel like, oh, this is one of these moments where we have to sort of tell him, like, you got to be a little dramatic here uh -huh. or something like that. So yeah. I don't know if that's it. It was it wasn't out of your voice, but yeah. it wasn't really yeah. mimicking your voice. Yeah. It was definitely adding a different register. Yeah. I don't know what you made of that when you saw that. I really liked it. I mean, that captured uh, sort of the sentiment that I had, but in, as you said, in this very dramatic way. And so I sort of, as an academic, uh, as an analytic philosopher, you know, like the, my writing tends to be drier, 
right? And so it doesn't. Uh, uh, and so when I saw that, I thought this is this is really gr great. It really accentuates uh, the uh, the arguments and sort of it gets at exactly what I wanted to say. Um, so I think you know I think I mentioned that you know I, I, that was I, I that was like one of my favorite phrases. <laughs> you know? So uh, yeah, I think I, I thought it was great. It, yeah. This comes up with academics yeah. a lot. One yeah. reason I go to academics, yeah. and one reason they're so valuable is because they say something like, well, it's complicated. Because that's often what you really want to know is the, the exactly what we're looking at here. Yeah. Um, and to, to take an issue that's being discussed in a very simplistic way and to show that one reason it's such an intractable issue perhaps is because there's a lot more going on yeah. than the standard kind of, you know, um, pro and con type position allows yeah. you to see. So you want to go to academics for the nuance, for the complexity, but you often wind up with something that doesn't have a kind of clear, punchy, mm -hmm. kind of journal journalism friendly, yeah. you know, answer. Yeah. And that's just a trick I use as an editor a lot is to try to figure out, you know, what's the most dramatic way mm -hmm. to encapsulate some of this yeah. analysis yeah. so that it feels a little more kind of fiery yeah. or, or haunting or something yeah. than 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 the kind of uh than the kind of pure academic writing might allow you to see mm -hmm. um, yeah did you um i never really followed up with you on it obviously when when people write um a piece for the times on a big topic uh, that everyone's talking about this is the sort of topic where yeah. people were interested in it as people who read the news but it's also the sort of topic where people are interested in it because everyone's on Facebook mm -hmm. except for me and Sam Scheffler and uh, <laughs> and so so it's also the sort of story that has a kind of almost like service it's sort of like the highest level service journalism mm -hmm. uh, it's yeah. intellectual service journalism should yeah. you should you leave yeah. um, and um, so it's a kind of piece that attracts people who are just reading the news and want to know what the latest Facebook outrage is mm -hmm. uh, but it also appeals to people who are reading the paper to learn things like mm -hmm. how to cook uh, chicken breast or yeah. should I leave my Facebook account? Like it, it, it had a kind of practical news. So yeah. um, I'm imagining that you you connected with readers of, of both sorts that it had a kind of um, re resonance. But I never followed up with you on whether what kind of afterlife it had for you as a yeah. writer once it was published. Yeah. Oh, uh, it had sort of amazing reception. I think ev even I think even on the Times thing, it was read many. Like there are so many comments on uh -huh. there. Uh, and then afterwards. Um, uh, I was invited to do a couple podcasts on oh, I didn't it, know that. yeah, okay. and also radio. I was on a radio. I mean, sort of like Berkeley, California, on it, uh, and so so I talked about some of those issues uh, with s some of those people. But I also uh, also received a lot of emails mm -hmm. uh, from people, and I also received this postcard from North Carolina. It was this handwritten postcard uh, by this lady who uh, sort of uh, she. You know, it was basically saying well done and she really supported it but it was very nice it was it was sort of in the day of social media uh -huh. with texting etc etc i don't i can't remember the last time i re received a handwritten letter it was very you know very neat uh you know sort of uh, uh handwriting pen penmanship uh -huh. you know so i i really enjoyed that um uh, receiving that um there was also another somebody else on Twitter 
basically took the argument and just uh, did a little comic uh, graphic novel type uh, sort of drawing of the argument, basically laid out the argument in sort of graphic form. Huh. And so I have that as well. So it, it uh, uh, you know, that, that was, you know, that was very rewarding. And so. then my only, my only bone to pick with you, Matthew, is after you did the piece, I said, uh, you know, you've got to be writing for me a lot more. <laughs> Everything you're interested in uh, seems like it lends itself to journalistic treatment. You're interested in all these controversial issues about artificial intelligence and CRISPR and uh, designer babies and everything like that. And you haven't published for me. Oh, so oh, I didn't know. I, I didn't know that there you're was. A, you have an I, open invitation. Right, I didn't. I didn't realize <laughs> that. I thought usually. I thought you know you. Uh, people ask you if you have to ask, then <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, then it, you know it doesn't work. But thank you. I'll I, let I, that be a lesson to you. Feel, okay. free to, feel free to reach out. Well, no, I, it's actually, um, it's actually. I, I feel like this goes both ways because yeah. once we did that piece, I yeah. thought to myself, as I often do with yeah. people I've published, where the the process was wonderful, the piece was great, got a great reception. It kind of represented everything yeah. that I like to see happen when I assign something. Yeah. Um, I often think I got to go back to this person more oh, often. Yeah. Um, and then you just, you know, yeah. the, the news cycle takes hold and right. uh, you, you just don't wind up uh, I- I doing it quite as much. But um, but uh, I do hope we work together I, more. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and uh, yeah, I, it was it was a really pleasurable uh, sort of like uh, it, the whole process was f- like great. Uh, I learned a lot from it and uh, would love to do it again. <laughs> oh, well, so. I'd love to I'd love to do it again with you. So, um, yeah, thanks again for taking the time to talk today. Um, we really appreciate it. Um, again, this is Matthew Liao, uh, uh, director of the Center for Bioethics at mm-hmm. New York University. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Jamie. You're welcome. Thanks. Thank you again so much for listening to Line Edit. I'm James Ryerson. You can find out more about our project by following us on Twitter at the Line Edit. That's at the underscore line underscore edit, where you'll find videos about each of the pieces we've dived into on the show, as well as news about upcoming guests, uh, workshops, and other events. We are very, very grateful to the John Templeton Foundation for their support and to the incredible staff at the public engagement program there who make all of this possible. They are dedicated not just to pursuing fundamental questions about what it is to be human, what it is uh, to be the world that we live in, but also to make sure that the best thinking on all those questions is disseminated as widely as possible to all the people who could benefit from it. This episode was produced and hosted by me, James Ryerson, and was produced and edited by Joseph Fridman. Our theme music was composed by Steve LaRosa at Wonderboy Audio. Special thanks to Lisa Feldman Barrett and Dave DeSteno, my partners in crime at Northeastern University, to Mia Lobel at Pushkin Industries, to Jennifer Dale and the staff at the CUNY Newmark School of Journalism, and of course, many thanks to Matthew and the Center for Bioethics at NYU for hosting us. You'll find Matthew's popular book, The Future Brain, in stores soon enough, and we hope you'll join us next time for Line Edit.
Many thanks, of course, as well to the Department of Psychology at the College of Science at Northeastern University, uh, which administers this project.